Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that says if you like it, you'd better put a ring-spun t-shirt on it. I'm Glenn Fleischman, your host and the editor and publisher of the magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You might also like the show. Recommend it if you like. It's Boing Boing's weekly podcast of long-form conversations with musicians, cartoonists, writers, and other creative types. Jay Finelli and Nathan Peretic know how to go it on their own. They've done it not just once, not just twice, but now three times. They formed the interactive services company, Full Stop Interactive, out of which United Pixel Workers was born, a company that produces fine, wearable merchandise. And United Pixel Workers gave birth to Cotton Bureau, a site that uses crowdfunding to pick which shirts should get printed. Jay, welcome to the program. Thanks, Glenn. Nathan, welcome to the program. Hey, There'll be a test later to tell their voices apart, folks. I first heard about you guys with Cotton Bureau, which is your latest effort, and then I realized how many different people I know have been working with you, some of them for years, on, on I guess we want to call it, what's the category? It's, it's sort of merchandise, right? It's T-shirts and hats and things like that. Primarily T-shirts, but yeah, we've, we've branched out into a few other directions. And T-shirts are to the internet as cigarettes are to the prison economy, it seems to me. <laughs> uh, everyone I've talked to um, who's involved in, in kickstarting or self-funded careers or whatever, they all seem to turn to T-shirts as um, one of the – I don't want to say the easiest, but one of the best ways when they develop a significant fan base to turn that fan base into profit over the cost of manufacture where – Everybody seems to be happy in the equation because they the fan gets like a unique piece of art or a unique connection. They know they're supporting the artist. The artist gets often a fairly decent markup on the T-shirt, which helps them support their career. What's your view of, of T-shirts and the internet? I mean, given that you guys are deeply involved in this space. Well, um, T-shirts for us were, were not really a way of giving back to our fan base. It was almost our way of <laughs> developing a fan base in the first place. When, when Nathan and I first started the company uh, four and a half years ago, um, no one anywhere knew who we were, um, barely even in Pittsburgh where, where we are. And we knew that we needed to change that somehow. This, this idea came to us for, for this sort of fake union for, for web designers and developers. That idea became United Pixel Workers. And we, we started to develop T-shirts uh, as, a, as a product for a few reasons, really. First, because honestly, we had a lot of free time. We only had one client at the time. Um, and we wanted to test uh, a side project. Um, we wanted to test a retail product, something that might be able to bring in some dollars besides our own our own client work. We wanted something that we thought would bring us some attention in the industry again, because nobody really knew who we were. And uh, and I know Nate's favorite answer is we wanted to, to make them so that we could have something to give back to the people who influenced us when we started our own company. So we started making T-shirts, um, and uh, I guess the the rest is history. Uh, <laughs> we'll go through that history, but uh, but that's yeah, kind of where should, we are. I should take you back to the be- the beginning. I started the T-shirt end because that's I think where you're most visible uh, right now. I mean, this is kind of uh, you know I, I guess I I guess I connect you too with Aaron Draplin because he's really known for uh, the books that he's done with Jim uh, Kudal with the Field Notes Guide is mm-hmm. kind of where he's come from. But he does an enormous amount of creative work that's kind of uh, uh, branded and you know it's his. But he also has a day job as do, you know, doing more regular design. Th- this is kind of the model that you guys have, have wound up with. Um, I'm tracing it backwards. Is uh, Tell me about how you, you started with it. Full Stop Interactive was actually your – your first company in 2009 of the three different efforts we're talking about, what was Full Stop? Right. Um, or what is Full Stop? I don't mean to put it – we'll talk about why I'm, I'm using the past tense, but what, what is and was Full Stop? 
Sure. You know, full stop, the word is kind of, is funny. People ask us what it stands for a lot. Um, not as much anymore since we, we haven't used it to identify ourselves uh, so much recently. But Jay and I worked together only really for maybe 12 months, 18 months. About 18 months. Um, at, a, at a web design video house um, in Pittsburgh. And we sort of became pretty fast friends there because it was a small company and we you know, worked hand in hand on every project as designer and developer. Um, and we began to notice a lot of things that we would do differently, and we, you know, we pushed as hard as we could to to modernize the workflow and the process and the output um, of that, you know, of the place we were together. But it it really wasn't going to happen. It was pretty clear that there was a wall between where we were and where we wanted to be. Uh, and one day, you know, we finally decided, you know, the the the, cam- the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, we were going to leave and do it on our own. And so the, the first name we came up with was full stop, you know, period, that's the end. And we never considered another name. You oh, know, that's that's who we were. Uh, so, we, you know, we started as full stop in 2009. And we, you know, we did every single thing that we wanted to do in the way that we wanted to do. We worked with only good clients. Uh, our old company used to have, you know, an understanding that at least half of the projects would be strictly for the money. And maybe if you're lucky, the other half of the projects would be about creative fulfillment or, you know, some sort of altruistic purposes or whatever the, you know, whatever gave you satisfaction. And we said that from the beginning, our company was only going to work with, you know, people who met all of our criteria for a good client, not just that they had money or not just that we enjoyed what they did, but that it was going to be a a fun process in collaborating with them, that we could do our best work, that we could, you know, make a name for ourselves and, and, and help their business, not just, not just make them a good website, but make a website that would actually improve their bottom line or meet their customers' needs in a way that they hadn't anticipated. Now, that's a huge bar you set for yourself, though, because the power of saying, no, we're not going to do this because we don't believe in it or it's not, you're not a good client or whatever, it's a huge superpower to say no. But it's also a huge penalty, right, because you're turning down work. And when you start a company, that's very difficult. How did you get started up where you could actually set the bar that high and, and say no to people that you really didn't want to work with? I mean, that's that's a really good question. Um, Especially in 2009, wasn't the economy in the, <laughs> in the tank? So you, but you must be collaborators, right? I mean, you must have, um, you must know and like people. That's my suspicion. Uh, <laughs> you're happy. Because yeah, you started, because <laughs> in 2009, you left the company, you guys leave the company, you start your own business, you're only going to take clients that you believe in, that you want to work for, that you think are, you know, that you can do good work with and you can really make them great. The funny thing about that is <clears throat> Jay and I are about as yin and yang as you can get. Um, and that that's really where we came together is the agreement that that's how we wanted to treat our clients and that would be the backbone of the company. In every other respect, we're completely different. You know, I, <laughs> I'm, I have a background in, you know, economics and I have a background in, in a number of different things that Jay does. I'm a developer and he's a designer. Um, what we are able to do is basically hijack a client from our existing company while we were able to, you know, begin to meet people. So I'm not the person who meets people. Um, I've gotten better at that over the past five years, but that wasn't my specialty coming into the company. You know, Jay was going to be the person who made the connections, and his existing connections were going to be the things that turned into our friends and family projects and, you know, friends of friends projects. Um, luckily, we did have, I mean, I shouldn't say luckily, we would not have left that job without the, the insurance of the, you know, of the big job that we'd be able to, to use to catapult us into this. Yeah. I mean, from a, from a dollars and cents point of view, um, 
we we pulled off kind of a heist um, to get a rather large client um, <laughs> away from our previous employer. Um, mm-hmm. it, there were there were many steps <laughs> um, that needed to happen uh, in exactly the right order, and uh, and they did. And we were able to to really take I, I think their biggest interactive client at the time away. We kind of made them a, a deal they couldn't refuse, and and that was. That was at least half of our income for the first ten months we were in business. So we didn't need to. We weren't starting from zero for about the first year. Can I ask you about the ethical issues in that? I'm always curious because there's, it's really fraught. Uh, I, there's that issue of you know, it's a competitive world out there. You're not mm-hmm. working for the company anymore. You probably had, maybe you didn't have a non-compete. Some companies force you to sign them, and some don't. Although non-competes are often totally unenforceable, but you have to go through court cases sometimes sure. to do it. How did you navigate that process? I hear people ask about this all the time, about the not you know the personal ethics or the decisions you make and then and then getting through it where you where you say, um, this is how we're going to be independent, but we need to work with the former client. Well, I mean the, there were a lot of gray areas, uh, for sure. I don't I don't know that we ever really felt all that bad about it, to be honest. And we're, we're two pretty 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 moral people. Yeah, I know. That's why. I, well, it, but I, I guess I asked, did you feel the client wasn't being well served? Is that's, my suspicion. That's part of it, right? So right. overcharged um, and under and under delivered. The company was maybe twenty five or thirty people, um, but only about five or six of which were full time web people. Almost everyone else was in video production at that company. So when Nate and I left, around the same time, almost kind of by happenstance, the the salesperson who was assigned to this particular client was also leaving because she wasn't particularly thrilled with the company. And one of the other designers in the web department was going to leave with us to help start full stop and then decided not to, but then also decided that he didn't want to be at that company anymore if oh. we weren't going to be there. So I kind of wow. made a few, I made a few calls around the city yeah. and found him a job at another at another agency. So within the span of, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks, uh, the salesperson assigned to that project left, Nate and I left, the other designer left, and then a couple weeks later, another good friend of ours left. So, I mean, the, the department was kind of decimated and not really in a position to do that scope of a project. And we said to them, we know what the budget is. Mm-hmm. We know how much your margin is. We know how much you, you want to be making. So you keep your margin and give the rest of the money to us, and we'll we'll do the project for you. You don't, you don't have to worry about any of it. So it kind of worked out for everybody in that you know the company we were leaving got to keep their money. We got the client and the work and enough money to keep us going, and everybody who wanted to leave got to leave. Oh, that's great. So uh, oh, that's – now that, see, that's a very interesting way of like threading that needle. So yeah. you made everybody happy. No one was angry with you and everything worked out. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, about, say, yeah, I don't know well, that nobody was angry with us. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had, but, uh, but I mean, nobody had a reason to be. You're, you're independent people. You could have left and left them on the hook and they would have lost the client or the client would have been extremely poorly served too. Uh, you know, around that time, I, I, I'm a bit of a bookworm and I had been reading um, some books, some pretty well-known books about persuasion, um, business negotiation, things like that. And we, we tried to look at it from everyone's perspective. And really, we made them an offer that they couldn't in good conscience refuse. I mean, it was it was fair to the client, it was fair to them, and it was fair to us. There were going to be some hard feelings. I mean, we were leaving because we didn't like how they were doing things, but everyone was going to be taken care of. And their primary objective, which was staying solvent and making money, was going to be met in our primary objective of having scruples about the, the website that's delivered to the client and those things was going to be met. And the client would never, I mean, the client knew but they would never uh, have any reason to care because the site would be every bit as good as it would have been had we stayed. I think that's kind of awesome, actually. That's um, it's funny your your guys are modest because that's a really complicated thing to pull off. But that gave you what you wanted to do. You were able to launch into 
uh, a new business with a major client and with a specific, you know, with a knowing that they were a stable one because they needed to stick with the company that you were essentially subcontracting for right. while you developed your new business. That's very clever. It's funny that uh, the, the story of Full Stop Interactive, you know, the, the client services company, sort of begins and ends with the same client. Um, <laughs> we thought it was going to begin and end with the same client under happier circumstances. Um, but as the world of client services sort of goes, it, it, it ended in unhappy circumstances. We, you know, three years later, we are invited back to bid on that same project and we would have made triple or quadruple the original budget since we had been splitting it up and, you know, things have changed over the past couple of years. Uh, and unforeseen to us, um, someone else got the contract. Oh, you know? man. And we had used that contract at the time originally to do the only thing we really knew how to do, which was, you know, client services. It was my first job out of college. You know, Jay had been in client services his whole career. So making websites for other people was what we knew how to do and what we knew how to do better than the other people around. We wanted to make Pittsburgh part of our identity, and we did that. We wanted to make being outspoken and participating in the, in the industry part of our identity, and we did that. And we, we wanted to make you know the best websites we could for clients. That was the foundation of the company. It just, it just so happened after a couple of years of working together, we realized, hey, we're actually better at making products that we can iterate on and, and see through to their completion than we are working with a new client every three months or a new client every six months. And that's sort of pixel workers was the tip of the spear. You know, t-shirts weren't necessarily the thing that we cared about. It was iterating on a product and making a company that was built around, you know, our core principles. I want to sidebar for just a second about Pittsburgh, the, the city that fought the American government to keep the H at the end of its name. When that's names, right. We're when, one of the only ones. That's right. Names were normalized and they fought was a U.S. geologic survey, geographic survey. Uh, the, the, there's this thing that I have been hearing lately, which is um, maybe related to how your business goes forward and, and where you are. Is Well, A, I, I've heard that Pittsburgh is a terrific town. It had a reputation as being kind of uh, – well, I mean the economy I know after the steel industry changed, uh, tanked and there were a lot of unemployment there and you know, there's famous songs written about Pennsylvania and its oil and uh, steel economy and so forth. But I understand that Pittsburgh has become a really uh, – transformed to a really lovely place to live and work. It's it's incredible. Um, Nate's Nate's been here uh, at least in Western Pennsylvania for his entire life. But I moved here to go to college in '97, uh, so I've been here for the better part of 16 years, and it's unrecognizable now from from what it was when I got here. Even in the last five years, um, it's it's pretty incredible. It, it's there's there are restaurants here. There there are things to do. There there are young people moving here. Um, every time there's a there's a list of the most livable places or the you know the best places to move in America. Pittsburgh is is at or near the top of the list. I, I it's 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 a pretty incredible place to be. Um, it's affordable. You know you can buy a house here. Rent is is pretty cheap. It's it's visually beautiful, which a lot of people don't know. Mm -hmm. um, the the topography, the rivers, the hills. You know, the city sits in a in kind of a, a triple river valley between between three rivers, and and you know there's there's a, a very concentrated downtown area. There's a, a football stadium and a baseball stadium that are all kind of in the in the same location. It's a it's a great place. Um, if you've never been here, it's it's worth a it's worth a visit. Excellent, and I, I should say that you know the the Pittsburgh Chamber of Commerce is not sponsoring this podcast, although perhaps <laughs> I should get them too. But the reason I, I bring it up in part is uh, I've been talking to folks about because you don't have to live in any particular place. 
anymore in the same way that you used to for certain kinds of businesses. But, you know, some you need to be there because you're working very directly in a community or with local clients or, or other collaborators and others you don't. I just talked to the folks who made Indie Game the movie. And I don't know if that'll uh, – in our schedule if that'll air after or before this podcast. But they're in Winnipeg, uh, Canada, and mm-hmm. it's partly because of cost. And I know that Pittsburgh is getting hot, but I assume that Pittsburgh is one of the – probably you know nicest combination of places to live and uh the cost of living compared to a lot of other places you could be that have you know creative communities or are sort of up and coming yeah i mean it's um you know there is a there is a creative community here um that that's kind of all over the place that that certainly didn't really exist or at least wasn't quite as uh unified even four or five years ago um you know we're not brooklyn we're not austin we're, we're certainly not the valley but I saw something on Twitter the other day that the the median uh, the median rent in San Francisco is thirty four hundred dollars. Oh yeah, it's, is that for a two bedroom or one bedroom? I can't I, 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 I don't something. Even, yeah. I saw that. Yeah, New York. You know, I was just in uh, Brooklyn recently. We did a pot, live podcast there, and uh, my friends who live in Brooklyn is now unaffordable to people who work at media jobs in Manhattan. Right. It used to be that you, you know, have to go to Queens. Right. Exactly. It's it's just as expensive to live in Brooklyn as it is to, to live in Manhattan. Oh, it's nuts. I saw something on Twitter this morning about Pittsburgh that the median two bedroom rent is something like nine fifty. Yeah, see, and that's what uh, – so I bring this up partly because as we talk here about these other businesses you're forming, one of the things that lets you have this flexibility, I think if people are listening in larger cities, they're going to say, this is interesting what these guys are doing. Can I replicate it? One of the pieces I, I'd have to believe is that your personal costs and your business costs are lower for things that cost – you know, could cost 10 times as much, five or 10 times as much in another city. Right. I mean, we have a few luxuries here. Um, you know, we have a nice office that that is, is somewhat necessary because we are shipping a physical product. You know, so we need a place for it to sit. We need a place for it to you know to ship out of. But it's it it doesn't it doesn't take a lot to subsist here, and it doesn't even really cost a lot to have some luxuries. There was a time maybe four or five years ago when when my wife was going to get transferred to, to San Francisco, and we were mm. looking at the cost of our house here. Um, you know, we live in a, a nice place, two bed, you know, two two car garage, new construction, and and our our what we would have paid for rent out there would have doubled our our mortgage here, and our mortgage here by Pittsburgh standards isn't exactly low. It's a place where where you can really you know you you can live pretty well on not a lot of money. Well, let's say Pittsburgh's the next Portland, clearly, because Portland, Oregon, has now been priced out. It's it's the the economy is is uh, on fire there. So apparently. You have to move yeah. to Pittsburgh, which is great. Uh, that's a, it's a beautiful part of the country. I didn't mean to get us too far off track, but I think it's relevant partly because a lot of people don't go through th- – You know, they would be where you are with Full Stop Interactive and they would be you know, in the early days probably struggling just to be able to be sharing houses with other people. You would probably have office space off in the middle of nowhere. It would all be unaffordable as a startup with that, and maybe you wouldn't have left your previous job because you would have been daunted by that prospect. Yeah, exactly. I mean, affordability did play a big role in it. Neither one of us live in the city proper, you know, so we're not even paying city rent um, prices. And when we left full stop, we, I mean, when we left the previous place, we bought MacBook Pros and walked out the door. Yeah, yeah. You know, worked from our house, met at the library, met at the coffee shop. And we probably went a year, year and a half before we got invested in, in an office. And we only did that when we picked up a client that was going to be paying us a substantial part of our of our salaries every month. And on top of that, pixel workers had grown to the point where we could pay for office rent exclusively from pixel workers income. So the way we were looking at it, 
our salaries were paid by clients and the office was taken care of by, you know, a very small portion of our, you know, weekly effort. Um, so, yeah, affordability, you know, affected both the, the <clears throat> beginning of the company and, you know, continues to affect it today. That's so fantastic. And and I guess this gets us to that transition then. And so Full Stop Interactive is underway. United United Pixel Workers, which is a great name. You guys have great design too. I mean, you know, clearly because people are buying your shirts, I can objectively say you have great design because people like it. I love to, to know how you managed to put that wedge in. Like where did you start tapping the wedge into, <laughs> into the two pieces of wood to break them apart where, where you did the first shirt or found the, the first – popular um, response to what you were doing outside. I mean, because most people, their, create, their goal in life is, yeah, I'd like to have an independent design shop and yeah, I'll be working for other people and that's okay. But that's, you know, I get to do my own thing and I find my own clients. So you were making your own choices about who you work with. But then you have this next thing. Like, so that wasn't creative enough for you guys, apparently. You wanted to be able to own even more of your independence. So tell me where the, where did United Pixel Workers emerge in the middle of full stop? Um... We started we the, the idea for Pixel Workers popped up in March of 2010 just as, as an idea, and, and as as I mentioned previously, the idea was for this faux web design union uh, of sorts. I mean, you know, we're we're in Pittsburgh as we exhausted, um, and a lot of other a lot of cities like Pittsburgh, you know, um, Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit, Milwaukee don't don't get a ton of uh, attention um, compared to the to the bigger cities that are tech hubs. So the idea came about to highlight these sort of like third and fourth tier cities in America that have these small creative communities and also have this this working class heritage. The original name for the for the whole thing was the Rust Belt Pixel Workers Union. Oh. Um, it was never supposed to be – or at least it was never originally intended to be this this global thing that it's become. And really the, the, cho- the, the chance or I guess the choice to make it a little bit more widespread – was really just because we we weren't we weren't confident in the beginning that we could sell enough T-shirts to make it worth our effort. So instead of going you know Rust Belt first, we went uh, Pittsburgh was was obviously our first city just because we wanted to wear T-shirts from our own town. But we started doing you know Philadelphia and New York and San Francisco and D.C. and Boston and things like that. And we did we did exclusively that for about the first uh, six months of Pixel Workers in uh, in 2010, and we had very modest success, if if any at all. I don't think we made a ton of money. I think we probably broke even, if that. Um, but most of our effort was spent making shirts for new cities, and then sending out a handful of shirts to people we respected in those cities. You know, so if we made a shirt for Boston, we would send a shirt to Ethan Marcotte and uh, Dan and Rich from Dribble. Uh, you know, we sent some shirts to people in the Valley. We sent some shirts to people that were from Philly, like, uh, you know, like Mike Montero and, uh, Dan Benjamin, Jason Santa Maria, just as a way to give back, but also in the sort of hopes that, you know, all right, maybe they say something about us and, and people, you know, we get a little bit of attention. So let me, let me try to understand. So the, you, you would, uh, you were actually targeting designs that made sense for specific cities. You're trying to be very, very local for right. cities that you felt sort of an affinity for and have an identity. So it wasn't a generic shirt. I mean, it was no, a lovely not at all. shirt. It was a very specific rooted shirt. Yeah. At first it was all of these local city-based t-shirts. Um, and we, we color coded each t-shirt according to each, you know, city's color identity, whether that was derived from a college or sports or, or something like that. And we pixelated uh, an icon from each city. So the empire state building or the golden gate bridge or the Liberty bell, things like that. Um, so each shirt had, sort of a similar template so you could tell that it was a pixel worker shirt, but everybody had their own identity. And it was a way for 
everybody in these communities to represent their industry as a whole, but also their local community specifically. So that was what it was at first. And that to some extent is still what uh, a big part of the, the foundation of pixel workers where things really changed for us. Um, because at that point we were only selling maybe a couple dozen shirts a month where things really changed for us is in early 2011, we blew up the site, completely redesigned it. And the, we, we changed how we were selling shirts. Um, we saw what John Gruber was doing with uh, daring fireball t-shirts yeah. where he sells, you know, one batch of shirts once a year. Uh, for like two weeks or something like that. Uh, he takes pre-orders and at the end of the pre-order period, he prints exactly how many shirts he needs and he ships them out to whoever bought them. And then he closes down the store and then he never sells them again for another year. Um, John was ahead of his time because he wasn't, he never called that crowdfunding, but right. before crowdfunding was a thing, I, I always thought that was really admirable because instead of having the rolling thing, it's like, well, well, because you don't know when you're going to get it. It's like, maybe we need a threshold and we'll print mm-hmm. it every once in a while and, or just you have to do the stock. I, I've got some t-shirts left over from some project where I don't know if I'll ever sell the rest of them, but I exactly. sort of try to estimate and, you know, what sizes and all that. Yeah. T-shirts so was, are a huge pain in the ass. Yeah. But this is, you know, Jonathan Colton, I probably mentioned this on like 15 podcasts. Jonathan Colton told me in some, episode we taped months ago he's like it's both the, like the bane and joy of his existence like they're they're a pain in the ass but they're also as i was saying at the outset they they drive they, well originally before he sold as much music t-shirts helped drive his ability to pay the rent too but uh, so you you're looking at john's model at um jonathan john gruber's model about uh that kind of like, a, a, what do you want to call it? It's like a capacitor. Like you load it up with enough charge and then you go, and the charge zooms out there and an event happens and he does it at a limited interval. So if you don't get in, you're sunk. You can't get it for the next period of time. Right. But I mean, the doing, doing pre-orders really takes a lot of the problems of making t-shirts out of the equation. Um, you know, you mentioned sizes. Um, you know, we do a, at least nine different sizes of every shirt that we make. So how do we guess what, what that what that spread is going to be, what the, what the distribution is going to be. We had no idea. Also, you know, you mentioned quantity. If you buy 144 t-shirts and then you only sell 44 of them, you have a hundred shirts left over. Doing pre-orders takes both of those problems out of the equation. And we thought, well, that's pretty smart. Maybe if we did that on a rolling basis, that would work for us. So we, we redesigned the site to take advantage of this, this kind of rolling pre-order model where every month we would have one or two new shirts and they were only available for that month. And at the end of that 28 days or 30 days, we printed all the shirts that we needed in exactly the quantity we needed and in exactly the sizes we needed, and we shipped them out. Um, Tell me something practical here because sure. uh, uh, from the printing industry, there's this uh, – and I believe this is still the case. In the printing industry, you used to have this thing which was 10% over under. So you order 1,000 items, 1,000 books, brochures, whatever, and the printer can deliver up to – 10% more or 10% under and you pay based on that quantity. They don't, you know, and they try to get as close to on the nose as you can. In the t-shirt world, is this really like one for one? Like you order uh 173 extra large t-shirts and you're going to get exactly that number? Yeah, I mean you might get one that had a hole in it or you might get one that didn't print correctly, but generally speaking you get exact quantities. Um we might order if the if the quantity was good enough, if a t-shirt sold well enough at the time, we might order a handful of extra in each size, you know, maybe one or two extra mediums and larges just in case 
someone's got lost in the mail or, or something like that. But right, but you don't have to plan for. There's not too much. Well, shrinkage is probably not the right. funny with t-shirts. You probably don't talk about shrinkage. Or inventory, <laughs> right. I think but, I think breakage is an industry wide term. Breakage, uh, I like wasted yeah. shrinkage, breakage. I love those words. Right, They're wonderful. Right, uh, but, but that's a great. So that that makes you it lets you. I was curious because that lets you target it precisely. And you're not putting in extra money unless you you want to have a few extras on hand or have a few to sell after the event for specific things. I imagine. Right. One of the other. I mean, the, the other big thing, and I, I the, we. We have to mention this is at the same time we started inviting guest designers onto the site. So again, at first we didn't really know very many people. We only knew the people who we'd reached out to for for free T-shirts in the in the previous year. But we reached out to people that we knew on Dribble. Um, our first guest designer ever was this uh, this this guy named Bobby McKenna, who now designs uh, Vine. He's a designer at oh. Vine. He's like the 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 interface designer at Vine. But at the time, he was a 20-year-old or 21-year-old, almost graduate of Notre Dame graphic design. And he was uh, he, he sort of made a name for himself on Dribbble. And he was a pretty funny kid. And uh, and I liked his work. I, I've almost never visited Dribbble. I know of it. It's What's it designed – it's designed to, to let people share things they're working on. Right, right. It's sort of it's, – it's like the graphic design community on the internet. That's great. I need to spend more time there, clearly. I just pulled up the homepage while we're talking about it. I'm like, you know, I don't think I've been to the site in – Years, literally. Dribble's fantastic. That's wonderful. So a great way for people to discover people they want to work with, right. um, And see the work. That's that's wonderful. It's a great right. way to expose stuff. To expose. So people. we started, uh, you know, we started working with guest designers. We redesigned the site. That was kind of another thing I think that uh, that helped us out is is that our store was nice. We had, a, you know, we knew how to make design and build a website. Um, so we tried to make each iteration of Pixel Workers kind of as I guess as crazy as possible. Um, you know, we, 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 we used it as our playground for, for web design because we were kind of able to do whatever we wanted to that, uh, you know, we, we weren't able to do on our, on our client sites. So we made cool websites. We, we reintroduced this pre-order model and we started inviting guest designers and we went from selling, you know, a, a couple dozen shirts a month to selling over a hundred shirts a month and then over 200 and 300 and 600. And throughout the course of 2011, we launched shirts from from bigger and bigger guest designers, um, people with a lot more, uh, a lot bigger names, a lot a lot bigger profile than our own, and the site just got bigger. Well, that's the trick too. Is I mean, you don't always have to hook your wagon to somebody else's star, but when you're collaborating with people and they have an audience, then you can get the multiplying effect of they found you because they like what you're doing, and then they can multiply your own effort with their own audience. Right, right. I mean, it's. Uh, Pixel workers wouldn't be what it is without guest designers. I've said that a, a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand more. You know, without people like Jeffrey Zeldman, Ethan Marcotte, Aaron Draplin, who you mentioned earlier, Draplin actually designed our logo. Um, oh, that's great! So uh, we, you know, we worked with him on a, on a T-shirt earlier. That's where our logo came from, is from the guest design that he made for us. Um, oh. Jessica Hish, I mean, uh, Megan Fisher made a huge shirt for us. Um, all these people who who have much bigger uh, profiles than our own helped us out. In the first, you know, year and a half of Pixel Workers, and the site got gradually bigger because of it. And by the end of 2011, you know, we were reliably selling, I would say, around 600 shirts a month, um, which is an order more than an order of magnitude bigger than what we were doing before. And this is part of that uh, the economy that we're in now too is that these are collaborators. Uh, so how did you set up the payment issue here? I mean, 600 shirts is both a lot and it's also not a huge quantity, but these were premium shirts, right? You're selling them as uh, both a, a, you know, good shirt, good design, and these wonderful designers you're working with. How did you structure payment in the back end to make everyone, uh, to, to get the involvement in it? 
We talked a lot about how payment should work, mm-hmm. um, trying to figure out a way that would be affordable for us and fair to the designer. Um, it's worth noting that when we decided to blow the site up the first time, it was really a make it or break it sort of effort for us. I mean, we've we've started, I don't know, half a dozen things after Pixel Workers that got to the same make it or break it point and we killed them. You know, but Pixel Workers got to it and we decided to do that pre-order thing. We decided to bring in guest designers and it made it. And that's why it's here today as opposed to all the things that you haven't heard of. As far as how to compensate designers went, uh, we knew we wanted to be as fair as possible. And we also knew we didn't have any money. So we could try to find some capital somewhere and then use that capital to purchase designs up front. Um, but instead, we decided to try to use our you know, abilities of persuasion and, and altruism and fairness to reach out to these people and say, here's who we are. Here's what we do. You've seen what we've done so far. You've seen who we worked with. We'd love for you to design a shirt with us. We will give you half of the profits of mm. any pre-sale that we run. So people said yes to that. People say a lot that you could reach out to anyone on the internet and all you have to do is ask and you know good things will happen. But how you ask matters a whole lot. And we tried to frame our you know our, our requests in as respectful and you know friendly and, and fair way as as we could. Um, so if you do a design for us, you might you might put five hours into it. You might put ten hours into it, and that's ten hours that you could have put toward working with a client who would pay you, you know, $200 an hour or $75 an hour, whatever your rate is. Um, and with us, you really don't know what you're going to get. Some people have only sold 10 shirts, 15 mm-hmm. shirts. Um, others have sold thousands of shirts. I mean, some of our best designs are from guest designers, and they continue to make money every time we sell the shirt. The other thing is we knew we couldn't pay people half of the profits forever. So it only applied to pre-sales. Right. Once, it, once we did stock a shirt, if it was successful enough to stock – uh, we gave people $3 residual every time a shirt was sold, whether we sold it on sale, whether we gave it away. I mean, not whether we gave it away, but, you know, if we sold it for $10, we'd still give them 3 bucks. So Well, tell me even about that now, split there, that, that pre-sale, because you're talking originally, so you had the, the sort of um, like a flash sale thing, like you have to buy in this period to get it. But then you were also stocking some shirts, so you, you started to modify that model as you went along, so there was both stocked and like event shirts. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I keep saying the word fair, and it, it really does sort of underpin everything that we do, you know, the sense of fairness. So originally we did the flash sale because that's the only way that we could do it. We couldn't buy a bunch of shirts up front. We had to rely on this critical mass of people getting together and all saying, yes, we'll buy the shirt right now. But once you do that, we have a little bit of money left over that maybe you could, you know, bump up to the next tier of prices with your printer and, you know, get an extra 50 that you keep in stock. I see. And on top of that, some people just couldn't buy the shirt at the time. Maybe they hadn't gotten their paycheck yet, or maybe they had just, you know, bought Christmas presents, or, you know, maybe they didn't hear about it in time. And we didn't want to completely leave those people out in the cold, so we tried to do, again, what was fairest to everyone, which was we would buy as much inventory as we could afford, and we would, you know, put it back on the site. Originally, we told people, this is the only chance you'll ever have to get it. And we had to modify that language as we went along because it wasn't everyone's best interest that we had it. It just needed to be something that was, you know, solvent for us. Well, I, I like that idea too that each of these is uh, like a little Kickstarter in that uh, – uh, and I mean I realize we'll talk more about that as we get into the Cotton Bureau part too, which is explicitly that way. But the notion I, – I go around and around this with different people because everyone looks at uh, crowdfunding in different ways I think, whether you host it on your own site. Uh, you know, I worked with uh, – uh, Tidbits, this uh, Macintosh publication for many, many years, and we built essentially a crowdfunding 
back end because we already had a payment system. We already had members. We built a membership system. So we said, hey, we're going to do these fund drives to help support us. And so we didn't need to go elsewhere to do it. And that was just as much crowdfunding as if we'd you know, hosted on Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And then you could replicate it as you did where each of your T-shirts is practically that way. But but there's that separation in multiple ways. Sometimes a Kickstarter is going to be uh, – or a crowdfunding campaign will be used – to make the thing you want to do and you're left over with more later, which is kind of what you're talking about. I mean, sometimes it's we're going to make X product and there's massive profit because people order 50,000 of X, you know, a Pebble watch or whatever. Yeah. But but a lot of the time it's uh, – and this is the magazine Kickstarter I'm working on, uh, still active as we record this. That's exactly my thing is the amount of money we raise essentially covers costs with a nice margin for error because you need that. I'm, I know it covers the fees, the costs. Everyone gets paid and at the end, we'll be left with an ebook to sell – and some extra print books to sell. We'll figure out what the run of print books is above what we need to fulfill. But I just kind of love that each of the things you're doing falls into that. Or, or as you modify this model, as you figure out what worked, that you had this more this stricter thing. It This is it. It's exclusive. Boom. It's done. And it was like, well, we can use this to kickstart funding or to, to getting more shirts without fronting the money every time. And you don't have to figure out which one's going to be the success or not. Right. I mean, Jay and I, going back to, to when we met, We'd never really been put your headphones on, sit at your computer and don't talk to anyone sort of guys. Um, we, we really couldn't help ourselves. We'd always be interjecting our thoughts into, you know, well, what if we switched away from Exchange and went with Gmail? Or what, why don't we use Skype instead of paying the phone company for whatever? You know, so we'd always sort of been pushing our ideas on a, a reluctant audience. Um, but that kind of holistic business thinking is the reason that we're doing what we do now. You know, David Sherwin has a, a really neat article uh, called The Tipsy Triangle of Startupdom. And it talks about the different aspects of being a startup. You can't just focus on one particular thing. You know, if we just focus on designing T-shirts, that business would have failed a long time ago. You have to focus on the business model of selling T-shirts and the marketing of, of reaching out to people who can collaborate with you and who can, you know, who would be interested in your thing. And you have to focus on the technology. You know, we used Big Cartel when we started United Pixel Workers rather than writing a store from scratch, even though we could have written a store from scratch. But how much longer would it have taken us to do that instead of putting our shirts up immediately on Big Cartel, paying a fairly nominal rate per month and dealing with, you know, PayPal, which was really the only game in town at the time. Um, you know, so that that sort of overall picture is really you know important. Scaling seems to be that issue too. That we have the options today that you can you can go all these different routes. You can host and out for products. You can outsource uh, at different scales uh, for hosting. You can self host or use e commerce platforms or what have you. And then as you get bigger and bigger, you can take more on if you want to, or you can outsource again. You go back and forth. I, I should ask you about the t shirt size. Uh, you don't run a t shirt silk screening operation, right? You work with uh, right. silk screeners. Right. I mean, we're we're uh, at the very top, or maybe we're somewhere in the middle of a, a giant tower of dependencies, of which you know the, the physical printing is only one, and maybe it won't be one forever. You know, that's that's a conversation that we have every six months, every year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I came from a, a pretty frugal blue collar family, um, and so the you know the, the value of hard work was stressed a lot, and the value of saving a penny was stressed a lot, and so my philosophy in, in business has always been. And, and life is that you trade time when you don't have money. And when you get money, you trade money so that you can have time. Hmm. And so every decision that we've, we've made as a company has sort of been viewed through that lens or that matrix is, 
can we afford to hire an accountant or do we need to do it ourselves? If we do hire an accountant, will that save us time that we could then put back into the product? You know, what about a lawyer? What about a, what about t-shirt screening? What about, you know, we could have done, you know, big cartel on our own, but it would have taken a lot longer. Um, so all those things, you're sort of, yeah, the APIs are all there. And it's nice that the building blocks are there because we couldn't have necessarily have done this years and years ago when it would have taken a whole lot more capital. There's so many building blocks that are already in place now. It's pretty easy to stack them up. I'm always curious about analog changes too. Is um, I've developed some more insight into this on the printing side because the the magazine, the book that we're crowdfunding, it benefits from the fact that digital processes have actually improved printing. So you can do much shorter runs of books. Uh, than you used to be able to affordably. You know, we can produce a thousand copies or fifteen hundred copies of this hardcover book and sell it at a reasonable price. Where you could not, you actually would not have been able to do that shorter run and have a decent per unit cost ten years ago. Has that anything? Has anything changed in the silk screening world where digital technology has improved parts of the process to make shorter runs more um, feasible to do and, and turn a profit on? Um. Not necessarily, in fact. Mm. Um, and that's kind of one differentiator that we have uh, versus a lot of the other people who are in this space. Digital printing is still behind silk screening, traditional silk screening in terms of shirt quality. Um, and every shirt that we make is still silk screened. Um, yeah. Wait, let me let me interrupt you. Let's do a sure. quick primer because I don't know the differences. My wife was looking into some T-shirt stuff for a business idea she had, and she went down the rabbit hole. I know there's like dye sublimation and there's, mm-hmm. there's silk screen. All this. What, so tell me the common methods because the listeners are going to be – just want to know. They have Everyone listening to this podcast has a thousand T-shirts in their drawers. All so right. what so are the primary methods of T-shirt printing? Traditional silk screening, which is how most shirts are made, uses a process where you take a fine mesh screen – and put a photoactive chemical on it and then put a, a transparency that has your design in it in, in black ink over that. Uh, and then basically you shine a bunch of lights on it and part of the photoreactive chemical that you put on the screen gets washed away and part of it stays uh, on the screen. You put this screen on top of a t-shirt, uh, you just slap some ink on the screen and you squeegee the ink across the screen, which pushes it through the screen uh, only in the, the places that your that your design appears onto a t-shirt. Um, if you have multiple colors, you get multiple screens. Uh, there's only there's one one screen per color. And the 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 ink sits on top of the shirt, right? It doesn't sink into the fibers necessarily. It sits on uh, classic uh, traditional ink, which is called plastisol, mm-hmm. uh, sits on top of the ink and it's you can feel it on the shirt. It's a little bit rubbery, it's very opaque. And you know it, it lasts a long time. It, sometimes it cracks if it's if it's too thick uh, after a, a bunch of washes. But that's traditional silk, uh, silk screening. There are other techniques that we use uh, called discharge or water-based ink. Uh, discharge is where instead of adding ink to the shirt, you're actually removing pigment from the fabric. Oh, um, so that's that's an option. It, it only works on cotton fibers. Uh, so if you have a, a poly blend, um, it's a little bit less uh, of a stark. Stark difference, but you know, if you take a black shirt and print it with discharge ink, you can take all of the black out of the shirt so that it's white again. And that's a technique we use. Water-based is uh, sort of a, a thinner ink that that does sort of sit in the fabric a little bit more. Uh, you can't feel it on the shirt. Uh, it's not as opaque. It's a little bit translucent, and after a while, like after a number of washes, it fades a little bit out of the fabric. So that's good for like vintage designs and thinner fabrics, things like that. Uh, the the other side of the industry goes by a few names. It's either called digital printing uh, or print-on-demand or direct-to-garment uh, is usually what, what it's called. And that's based – Is this the dye sublimation 
approach I, or no? You know, I'm not. I'm actually. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure about that. Um, we'll, it's, I'll put it's, show notes in about. We'll, I'll follow this sure. up with show notes. But I'm so. I, I hope people are also fascinated. That's so why I'm getting you down the rabbit hole because it's there's so. We all own these shirts. We want to see dye sublimation on the printing side. It's this evaporative process in which um, dye is taken directly from sheets of material and uh, almost deposited as vapor onto uh, a substrate, but mm-hmm. you can get continuous tone out of it. Okay. So that's the, that's I don't know, and I know that you can. There's is some t-shirt process, but it might be one-off, almost like transfer, like heat transfer that uses dye sublimation as well. Right. Direct to garment is almost like a big inkjet printer. Mm. So you put a you know you put a shirt into the into the machine and it prints out it prints out a shirt for you. Um, and the technology has gotten better over the last few years, but there 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 are a lot of uh, sites on the internet that use digital printing just because it's. It's more economical to print one shirt, which is most of the time, I think, what, what a lot of people want to want to print. You know, it might be somebody sitting around with a design. They're like, oh, I would like to get this on a T-shirt. Well, printing one shirt via screen printing is very labor-intensive. It's very expensive. Uh, even our print shop, who loves us, and we've been working with them for years, and we send a billion uh, referrals to them all the time, they still charge us as, you know, a lot of money for one T-shirt. Uh, right. So it's, it's, it's not a very economical process. But direct-to-garment allows you to print one-offs essentially. So a lot of people out there who are in the sort of like t-shirts as a service space use direct-to-garment printing instead of traditional screen printing because it allows you to print in much, much smaller runs. But the quality, uh, the reliability, the crispness uh, of the of the design, the longevity of the design, all that stuff suffers with, with digital printing. It's fascinating. That is the same thing in the in the offset printing versus uh, print on demand world. Is a print on demand book you can get one book if you yep. want, and it can look actually pretty great these days. Not as great as offset printing, but it's gotten closer and closer. But your first book and your thousandth book cost the same amount on print on demand, right? Really, and that's yeah. We're we're investigating digital printing because it's been a while since we've really looked at it. Because if it's close enough for a couple of our shirts, I don't know that we'd ever go digital, at least in the, in the near, in the near term for all of our shirts, but for a couple of our products, uh, namely those local shirts that we were talking about before, we have so many of them that people in small cities would, would love to have that if we had the ability to print them in very small runs, you know, a handful at a time or even one at a time, it would open up our, our, our back catalog, uh, so much more than it, that it currently is. But right now and, and up to this point and in, in the near future, everything we do is a uh, is screen printed and it's screen printed at a very very high quality too. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's a uh, that's another thing that, that kind of sets us apart. I should make my disclosure episode disclosure conflict of in- interest disclosure because all mm-hmm. podcasters should do this because I own a couple of your shirts uh, now. Surprisingly, I think I must own more than two. Looking through the designs, but I know that the two specifically is uh, you folks were the uh, back end uh, via Cotton Bureau for the incomparable podcast or the geeky podcast that I. I'm a panelist on with uh, hosts Jason Snell and a bunch of other great folks. Um, we did our Zeppelin and logo T-shirts with you guys and sold hundreds of them, I think. Mm-hmm. Until very recently, that was the best-selling shirt in the in the history of Cotton Bureau. We had no idea we had so many fans. It was wonderful, and it's also the Zepp- I think the design was great, wonderful. Uh, I don't actually remember the designer's name. It said I'm going to put the show notes. I'm going to say who designed the shirt. But uh, it was, uh, so I, Icon Factory did it. Oh, that's right. Icon. Yeah. So it's the. Uh, I was thinking. I forget the specific name, but uh, it's a, Ze- a great Zeppelin design. Then we have our logo, which is the robot and super puros and and so forth. So I have both. I have two different kinds of shirts. Uh, and then you folks are also working with me through the United Pixel Workers side, uh, uh, helping with my Kickstarter for the magazine. And um, we're going to do a, a shirt for Dil- of Dylan McConus's RoboCat illustration that appeared in an earlier issue of the magazine. Magazine and um, and which I think looks great. And you helped me 
go through the process of figuring out how, you know, the colors and how it was going to work and, and produced, essentially took a design and interpreted it so that it'll actually work uh, with this method. And right. it was interesting, uh, you know, go through the creative side. It was interesting coming to you and saying, look, I have this really messy idea and it's very, very complicated. You're like, whoa, 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 let's, let's back down and break it down. The simpler works and, and iterating and seeing how you took all this experience you'd had about what sells, what works, what's graphically important and working that into. And so the final thing, I'm like, oh, this is so much simpler than what I came with. And it's great. And I love it. And now it's iconic. You've, you distilled it to the essence of what was trying to be instead of being all kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's been one of the things that, um, that's kind of rewarding for me, at least personally is, uh, as I mentioned before, I'm the only designer among the, among the, the group here. So a lot of times I'm, I'm kind of designing at least, you know, with, with style in a vacuum, you know, we talk about uh, usability, obviously, to death here uh, among the among the three of us. But when it comes to, you know, whether something should be this color or that color, whether something should be, you know, this style or that style, I'm I'm kind of the only voice in the room. <laughs> what Pixel Workers allowed me to do, and now what Cotton Bureau allows me to do, is you know, kind of do give a little creative direction to to some people. And sometimes that you know that's been scary because I'm talking to people who. You know, if there was a Mount Rushmore of graphic design, they'd be one of the four faces and I'm giving them creative direction, you know, because it, it might not necessarily work on a t-shirt. But that's been one of the things for me that's been particularly rewarding in this process. It's well, it's fun too because I, you know, I feel like I have good domain uh, expertise in specific areas. Sometimes I'm very deep, and sometimes a little bit. Right, I can get myself into trouble. And it's great when you talk to someone who's got very deep expertise in the thing you're trying to do, and you're like, oh, well, it's simple to you, and that's great. And now I don't have to worry about it because you know how to make it make it happen. And I, I gave us a little bit of a transition in talking about Cotton Bureau, which I think now we should talk about more fully because this is a, a different site. And that's why at, at the outset, I was saying you guys have sort of three different things and that's changing. And by the end here, we'll talk about some of the, the, the current change too. But uh, uh, Full Stop Interactive is services firm. United Pixel Workers popped out of it as a side effort that you figured out how to make work, made, became bigger and bigger, started to pay the rent. Where did Cotton Bureau come out of United Pixel Workers because it has a lot in common, but you created a distinct identity and then beta tested it and then launched it as a kind of separate brand and thing. Right. You yeah. want this one or you want me to... Uh, no, I got it. I've been waiting this. for this one. All right. <laughs> I was going to take us there. Step even, aside. Yeah. Let me step aside. Yeah. Now, I was going to say that you know we should talk about where Cotton Bureau came from because it evolved pretty naturally out of the things that we were just talking about, You know, the limitations of screen printing and the you know sort of the pre-sale model that we had um, gotten good at with United Pixel Workers. Uh, early 2012, we we rebuilt United Pixel Workers as a completely responsive site. Um, it was our first responsive site. It was you know relatively early in the um, you know in the tradition of responsive sites. Uh, we did a lot of things wrong that we subsequently corrected. But one of the other things that we did at the same time was launch a uh, a line of partner T-shirts. Uh, so worked with a list apart and wood type revival and RDO and you know a, a lot of brands that people have probably heard of services on the internet and that that really began to stress the amount of um, product that we could have on one site. Yeah, it also had an extremely high barrier to entry. You know, not everyone is uh, a book apart. You know, not everyone's RDO. Um, but what if you'd like to do something like that? Where do you turn? And at the time, we weren't aware of any any places for people like that to turn. You know, I'm a, I'm a relatively avid reader of uh, Clay Christensen, and so I'm, I'm pretty familiar, if not um, painfully aware, of how things get disrupted, at least from the technology side. And so 
we were effectively a retail store, which has a, a relatively limited amount of. I mean, we we weren't even close to tapping the you know the ceiling of it, but it still has a, a, a ceiling. Um, whereas if we took the 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 know how that we built up, we could create a platform that could allow us to disrupt ourselves by putting anyone who who can create a good design in the store and allowing them to sell as many shirts as they want. So we took the exact model that we already had, and the only thing we did was we put a limit, uh, a minimum of 25 shirts, so you had to get to 25 shirts. We made a happy medium between our uh, one-month pre-sale model and our one-week pre-sale model. We went with two weeks, uh, so there's no choices there. You don't get to say, I'd like mine to be five days, or I'd like it to be one day, or I'd like it to be 150 shirts. Every shirt on the site on Cotton Bureau has to sell 25 in two weeks or it doesn't get printed. Mm -hmm. But Um, that's good. You you know, this is the constraint issue. And Kickstarter found that too. And if you study Kickstarter's success and the information they put out and people's separate analyses, having a lot of choice doesn't actually help you do better. People center in on specific things that work. For instance, at Kickstarter, campaigns of 30 days or fewer, I think, fund almost 60% of the time versus under – no, not 60%. It was over 50%. I think campaigns of more than 30 days fund uh, closer to 40% of the time. I think their average is 44% of all projects get funded. And so now it's like if you're starting a Kickstarter project, doing 60 days, you're not shooting yourself in the foot, but there's no specific advantage to it. You should have a very, very specific reason, a campaign or something time-related that makes you do more than 30 days. Kickstarter lets you do these very short ones of the durations you're talking about, which is new as of a couple years ago, and they got rid of the – I think you can't do anything longer than 60 days now. They used to have a 90-day option. So people have – I think the marketplace, the unseen hand of people participating seem to have focused in, and and I like that you've made a choice. You said this is it, and and you give that expectation to anyone who comes to your site as a customer that that's going to be the same thing. They don't have to think about it, right? Yeah, and we – I mean we've spent – a couple of years sort of fine tuning that um, a month was a long time to wait for a t-shirt. You know, why can't I get my t-shirt faster? Yeah. And a week is what we do on pixel workers. And that, that works pretty well because people know what they're getting with pixel workers. And we'll probably stock the shirt after it's done. And you know, th- there are reasons why it's short on there. Uh, two weeks is pretty good. You know, you don't have to wait too long. You can get it in time for Christmas. If you, you know, order around Thanksgiving, um, you can, you know, find a paycheck somewhere to get some disposable income in two weeks. You know, it works pretty well. And 25 is just – that's about the minimum that you should ever really be printing shirts at when you're doing screen printing. So you know, that's what we set it at. Um, and I'm sure there will be some experimentation and variation with that you know, as we go along. But it, it was a good place to start. And we, in, in order to launch you know, sort of the minimum product that would, would work for everyone, that was something we went with. And there were a lot of those decisions that had to be made. I mean thankfully, you, know, you kind of alluded to it very early in the podcast that – uh, our client services business, we you know we killed you know a couple of weeks ago, and the reason we did that is because we really wanted to invest all of our time and effort into Cotton Bureau and United Pixel Workers. And now that we are, a lot more stuff is getting done. You know, we have a lot of plans for what Cotton Bureau can be over the next three to six months that we're you know we're pretty excited about. And we couldn't have done them if we had to continue, you know, working on on client stuff. It's the little nicks and cuts that come from your day to day work that distract from the bigger things you want to do. And it just it's just a you know it's the death of a hundred thousand cuts <laughs> of uh, every prick of time that you have to take away from the thing that you're yeah. really trying to dedicate yourself to do. I mean, we talked we talked extensively about what if we did a Kickstarter, you know, how much money could we get doing that? What would it enable us to do? 
Um, but you guys you know, don't. If we, you came down against it, right? Because you don't need to. You have a million Kickstarters and you have your own platform to do it. I mean, I understand there's like the – you could have gone out and said, we're doing this crazy special limited edition run. We'll never make them before and and shoot it. But then you would have sort of shot everything in one blow, right? And it exhausted all sorts of demand and created a huge lump of work to do all at once. Is that – I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to reverse engineer why you made the decision. Do, do those factor in? Uh, I mean, yes, there were other factors too. I mean, we were, we also talked about, you know, VCs. We were probably one degree of separation away from anyone we'd want to talk to in, you know, in New York or San Francisco or Austin. Um, we talked about, you know, could we just take out a small business loan at the bank? You know, there, there's a very real gap in, you know, the, the place, the, the financial place that we were with clients and the financial place that we are doing exclusively our own products that we Mm -hmm. need to overcome. So, Kickstarter would have given us a pretty substantial early boost that would have, you know, possibly paved over, you know, that difference. Uh, the main reasons that we didn't do it are, yes, like you said, that we already have a pre-sale engine, but also because, I mean, we could, we could, we could do all. Kickstarter provides things that we don't have right now. There's a, a template there. There are mm-hmm. expectations. There, you know, there's there's just a, an entire attitude that goes along with doing a Kickstarter that we would have definitely benefited from. We decided that we'd rather sort of follow in the tradition that we've set for ourselves over the past four years of gradually bootstrapping it. So the only expectations are ones that we set for ourselves. The only, you know, the only people who have equity in the company are, you know, are, are ourselves. So we can decide without making undue promises about what's coming and when it's coming, we can just, if we can get through the rough patch over the next month or two, Hopefully we can hit an equilibrium, you know, in early 2014, and we won't have sort of the the Kickstarter deliverable hanging over us. Well, this is the thing I I love about what you're doing is that uh, people can go to – I'll put it in the show notes. Wearefullstop.com, and you just spelled it out. You said this is tough. What we're doing now is actually not a sustainable thing, but we have in our minds how we're going to get there. And I think – Putting it out there that way, the economy that you're in and the people that you've worked with, especially this creative community, will say, oh, we need to bring ideas to these guys. Now they're at it full time. This is all they're doing. So you know, we're going to bring our best design to them to try to do crowdfunding on Cotton Bureau or, oh, we've got this thing we've talked about or you'll be able to reach out to people and say, this is where we're going. We are totally behind this and I suspect you're going to get a great response and I expect you probably already have had some of that. It's been a it's been a pretty good couple of weeks here. We had a lot of <laughs> positive feedback and reinforcement when we made the announcement, and I mean it wasn't a coincidence that the timing happened right now. I mean it was in the sense that we had been sort of waiting for it and we hit the breaking point. Um, but this is a particularly good time of year to to need to come up with some retail dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the past month, you know, November and December, we've already met sort of our quotas for what we need with those months. Now we're hoping to put away mm-hmm. some for. What may or may not be a slow time, um, it's funny, you mentioned 2009 being a kind of a, an unfortunate time to start a company. It was very much part of the plan. You know, I, as a person who uh, studied economics, I, I, I convinced myself and Jay that we were small fish and we could sort of rise up and take some of the bigger uh, jobs that people were still going to be spending money on websites. You know, when I graduated from school in 2006, I think the Bureau of Labor and Statistics said something like half of all government agencies had websites and, you know, 40% of small businesses had websites and 60% of large businesses had websites. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like a very opportune moment to get into, 
you know, making websites for a living. And so then in 2009, I convinced us that if we left, we could take jobs that would normally go to bigger companies, but we could do them ourselves. And that's not exactly the way it turned out, but, you know, we, we still managed to, to scrape through at that time. So I think we'll be fine. <laughs> my, uh, my favorite cliche to mention when, when this uh, comes up in, in discussions is that in a mass extinction, the, the big animals die first. <laughs> well, that's why your adherence of Clay Christensen, I can tell. I was going to say, like when we talked about uh, digital printing of shirts, that's a classical, a classic uh, innovator's dilemma situation is digital printing is bad at first and everyone yep. says, ah, it's not going to go anywhere. Yep. The people who are totally invested, not you guys, because you're out – you're contracting out, but the folks who are doing the conventional silk screening say it, it. You know, I shouldn't say all of them. I'm sure, some people are more clever than this. They say, ah, our business. It's they'll never get there. Look how crummy this is. And then it gets a little better, a little better, a little better, and then it's to the point where you guys are like, you know, maybe we should do digital. We should look at it again because it's probably good enough for this segment of the market. And then it takes that segment of the market, which could be very lucrative and high margin. And then it gets bigger, and suddenly, instead of being this. Thing off to the side, suddenly digital printing is 40% of the market and 80% of the margin and conventional silk screening, they have to lower their costs and charge less and less and less and make and they get squeezed out. Yep, and yep. you know, I'm not saying that's going to happen here, but boy, have we seen that a lot of times. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd be shocked if we didn't have some digital offerings you know, in a relatively short time. I love that. But um, you're in the same boat. Is that the, the T-shirt market – I mean the garment industry, the wearable product industry is – Vast, and you're trying to carve out a very, very tiny, neat part of it, and you've already found an audience. So all you're asking is of our point zero 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 one percent, or maybe even less, of this market, we'd like that one to become a two or a three. It's yeah, not not yeah. a lot to ask, actually. Yeah, there was a there's an article that I posted on our old blog about 2010 that basically asked people in our position, what are you going to do about the fact that mobile Internet connectivity is becoming ubiquitous. You know, are you, how are you going to approach that? And in our space, we were a client services company, so all we had to do was modify, you know, our pitches to people and make sure that we were in touch with responsive design or app design and you know things like that. Um, but it's funny; it's worked out that if you saw any of the statistics that Luke Rabluski cited after you know this year's Black Friday, the amount of sales, uh, retail sales over mobile was close to, I think, 50% of all online sales. Mm-hmm. Um, and we here we are now involved in sales full-time, and we had always, from the beginning, made our sites very responsive on mobile devices. So we were right in the boat with everyone else. Really, we didn't end up making applications, although we made some applications. And, uh, you know, but we did sort of stumble our way into a, a thing that meshes well with mobile uh, lifestyles. It's uh, well. I'm I'm really interested to see where this all goes, and I'm I'm happy to be a participant in the experiment too. Uh, this is what's fun to be in this economy now, where we're all kind of. I, I collaborate and work with so many people. You guys came on to be guests on the show. I'm doing this T-shirt with you. The incomparable thing was off to the side. I had nothing to do with it, but I got to watch it happen. It, it's fun to all learn from each other and support each other. It's like, you know, it's a big, we're all, it's not a big happy family. A lot of us are in different businesses and some of us are even in competition with one another. But I really feel like uh, I benefit from your success and I want you to succeed both personally and professionally. And uh, and it's it's just a great place to be. And I just appreciate you guys sharing your story. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate being able to come on and talk about it because I'm, you know, we're both sort of writers by trade. 
Um, but if you're around us very often, you'll find that we're we're very much talkers too. So <laughs> I we'll, should point uh, out you have a podcast too. I'll send people to your site, and there's a podcast we, there as well. We have sort of a podcast that's on sabbatical. Uh, it's called Origin Story. It's at United Pixel Workers. We talk to people about sort of where they came from, independent of what they're doing now. You know, sort of how they got to what they're doing as opposed to what they're doing. And we, you know, we're writing again at We Are Full Stop. That's going to be our blog. As we sort of Talk about, you know, why did we not choose Kickstarter? Why do we not choose, you know, VC money? Why are we doing it the way that we are? You know, how much do we really need to make the ends come together? You know, we have blogs at United Pixel Workers, and, and we'll have a blog pretty shortly, maybe tomorrow, at, uh, at Cotton Bureau. So there will be plenty of places to, to, to crawl inside our heads pretty soon. That's awesome. So if people who are designers, design-oriented, uh, want to participate in Cotton Bureau, what's the bar for entry there? Are you taking uh, – I mean how much are you curating what comes through before it goes up? Uh, we are curating pretty pretty heavily uh, and that's one of the things that, that I think sets us apart. Anyone who wants to send us a shirt can. Designs at CottonBureau.com is, is the email address that, that everything goes to. From that point, it, it kind of needs to get past me uh, <laughs> and, and sometimes I – I ask other people what you know what they think of certain designs, but generally speaking, I'm the one who design who decides what gets on the site and what doesn't. I, I don't know that I have any hard and fast rules uh, or any any hard and fast um, hurdles that you need to that you need to clear. I, I just kind of rely on my own sense of of what's of what's what's good, what's what's modern, what's relevant, uh, what's derivative, and and hope that that's hope that that creates uh, a community on Cotton Bureau that. That people want to be a part of, you know, that that sets a standard of quality that you need to to kind of aspire to, uh, you know. That I, Nate alluded to it earlier, but um, you know, the people asked us for years whether they could make their own United Pixel Workers T-shirts, and for a long time we we had to say no to to most of those people, not because their designs weren't any good, but just because they didn't quite have the notoriety that we needed at the time for them to sell the kinds of the, the quantities of T-shirts that we needed to sell. With Cotton Bureau, you know, we tried to solve that problem by saying the only barrier to entry is the quality of your design. It doesn't matter whether you have five Twitter followers or fifty thousand Twitter followers. Um, so far, that's been the case. You know, we've seen people who are are relative unknowns sell you know fifty or sixty or, or seventy T-shirts. You know, going back to Dribble, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about the early days on Dribble was that there were the there were the established names there were the graphic designers that you'd heard of and that you you've been following for years but then these these people started to emerge who you'd never heard of before on dribble who had tremendous talent and tremendous technique and now they're stars in and of them you know uh, of their own of you know by the, by themselves they have thousands of dribble followers they have thousands of twitter followers you know and, and they started to they got better jobs they got more work they work at big companies now you know and before a place like dribble no one knew who they were we, you know, I don't know that that's one of our goals with Cotton Bureau, but I would, I would love to see that one become one of the side effects of, of, of Cotton Bureau. Well, there's this nice thing about uh, the meshing of digital and analog stuff. It used to only be that digital things could benefit from going viral, right? Like analog stuff was hard and it was hard to make it. And if you couldn't get a digital, you know, digital download of a song is easy. Uh, Pomplamoose uh, breaks into the crazy popularity on YouTube and they could sell 100,000 downloads instantly and you know something like t-shirts or books or other stuff could be much much harder you guys are seem to me like you can leverage that advantage that you can take an audience or an event something that happens that spurs a moment and turn it into something palpable and real with the same kind of acceleration advantage so if you have one standout artist i mean i'm still surprised by the incomparable not because we don't have fans because we do we get great feedback and we have a lot of listeners and so forth but that people were like oh 
we can get a T-shirt of this show we like and the Zeppelin or even the logo, which says Incomparable on it. It was great to see that kind of flashpoint and people get excited. So it seems to me you have this neat inflection point where you're taking advantage of something that's a little bit newer of turning a viral interest or extreme interest in something online into a physical thing because you're bounding it by time and saying this is something you can get if you like this or if you found this right now. But that could produce stars. I mean, that could produce an effect where someone does a shirt and you sell a thousand of them, even if the person's never sold a design before. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are so many use cases of, of Cotton Bureau that we see, and some of them are, are a little disparate. Some of them don't don't quite have as much to do with each other as others. You know, we we see this as a as a community for design uh, for design T-shirts. Now, because of our because of our unique makeup uh, in terms of, you know, we, 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 we dip our toes into tech um, just because we're a web design shop I and mean, we have interests over there. We listen to those podcasts too and things like that. You know, yeah, we, we will do a shirt with the incomparable that isn't necessarily about design as much as it is, as it is about, about other things. But the shirt has to be a well-designed T-shirt. Um, for it to for it to to, to crack cotton. Pure. Yeah, we and we iterated that too. I remember seeing this the drawings and you know and the logo side and then in the T-shirt and the colors and so forth. And it wasn't just like, hey, we got a logo that's sticking on a blue shirt. It was right. It was a development. Right, but also, I mean, I was going to say, um, you know, brand affinity is something that that is is pretty powerful. Um, and a lot of people try to manufacture it, and a lot of people have it that don't realize they have it. Uh, like I said, the incomparable shirt was. The best-selling shirt on Cotton Bureau in our very short history uh, until this week oh, when um, uh, Turntable.fm, which is a, a service that actually just shut down uh, on Monday, they wanted to do a shirt with us to commemorate the closing of Turntable.fm. Oh, oh. And they launched their shirt the day that the site closed, and they sold 300 shirts in a day. Well, that's sad and happy at the same time. Well, I mean, they're doing something else. I mean, they kind yeah. of pivoted their service a little bit, so they're they're you know not, they're not out of a job. But oh, okay, um, good. But they you know they they sort of commemorated it with this T-shirt, and it's it, it rocketed past uh, the Incomparables record, and it's still on its way up. And you know, we don't know where it's going to end up, but you know, tapping into that sort of event plus the brand affinity, it's like it, it went you know the shirt went nuts. Curses to them! They've they've beaten our total. No, I, that's the nice thing about wanting the uh, the water to rise all boats. I'm like that is excellent. Like always, set a bar that someone else can beat. Well, look, you've got a lot of work ahead of you, but you obviously know where you're going and where you hope to go. And I I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this really interesting journey from one company to another to a to adding a third and figuring out the future. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we uh, are very happy to be here, and I don't know if we know where we're going. Um, I'd say that you could describe what happens in here as a process of a you know a dialectic. It's it's very much a debate club, and you know Jay's ideas for what Cotton Bureau would be, and my ideas for what Cotton Bureau would be, and everyone else in the room gets a say in, in where it turns out. And it's very different than what it would have been originally, uh, as is United Pixel Workers. But um, we think that that process has been has been pretty good for everyone. You can now support the production of this podcast directly by becoming a patron at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Support us at a level of $1 or more per podcast. At higher levels of support, you get our on-air thanks and more. We'll be adding more patronage benefits over time. You can also sponsor this show. 
visit podlexing.com, that's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. We're also a happy part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.